Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 1, 11b through 2, 8. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. My name is Justin, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church. If you are just joining us, uh, last week we began a new sermon series here, studying the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Now, last week I basically covered an introduction to the book and the first chapter. Uh, My kids let me know that it was a really long sermon, especially in the second service. So I am going to do my best this morning to tighten things up, okay? Um, Just getting back into the uh, swing of things, I forgot. See, I control how much I say and how long I go by the size of font in my notes, okay? And let's just say I bumped it up a little bit, okay? Uh, Winston Churchill, I think, was once asked, uh, how long does it take you to prepare a 15-minute lecture? He said, about two weeks. Wow, the person responded, well, how how long does it take to to prepare a 30-minute lecture then? He said, well, about a week. Surprised by this response, they said, well, what about an hour lecture? He's like, I'm ready right now. (laughs) Basically, if you give me enough time, I can find a point in there somewhere, right? So I'm, I'm with Winston on that one. It's a whole lot more difficult. It takes a lot more time to actually shorten things up and trim, th- trim the fat than it is to just preach an hour. So let's pray this morning and ask the Lord to help me do that, all right? Gracious Father, who rules the universe, well, we come before you this morning and we just confess that we are not you. We are not all-knowing. We are not omnipresent. Um, we lack many things. We lack a lot of knowledge. We lack a lot of wisdom. We lack strength and power. We lack so many things that that you are and that not just that you possess, but that you are. And so the first thing we want to say this morning is we need you. We need to be fixed. We need to be healed. We need to be straightened out. We need our thinking to be brought in line with your will and your ways. And so we know that the main way that you straighten us out is through your word. And so we humble ourselves this morning and we come under your word. And that Uh, I want to say first and foremost that I come under your word. So I, as a sinful man myself, ask you 
to hide me behind your pulpit, hide me behind your word, that I would not speak anything just of my own thoughts, my own opinions, but it would be all of you and none of me. Father God, would you, through your word this morning, would you speak to your people? I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would give them courage this morning to stand strong in a wicked and perverse generation, as the apostle calls the generation of the world around us. So I pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, let me catch us up to speed really quick this morning. Last week, we were introduced to this man named Nehemiah. He is the author of this book and most likely the author of First and Second Chronicles and Ezra as well, that they were most likely one long book um, cut up just so they could basically have scrolls uh, that weren't super long. Now, Nehemiah is a Jew and he's living as an exile in Persia. His family had most likely been deported when Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem. So what we learn right away is Nehemiah was a foreigner, right? Nehemiah was an outsider. Nehemiah was a man of God who remained faithful to God while in the midst of a pagan culture. And God blessed his faithfulness, right? Men and women, what's our number one responsibility as living in the culture? Remain faithful to God. Remain faithful to God. When everything else is falling away, when everything else is going crazy, remain faithful to God. And in the midst of that darkness, God elevated this one faithful man to this position as cupbearer. Now, a cupbearer um, sounds like a kind of boring job, right? You don't go to school to be a cupbearer. You know, you don't have aspirations. What do you want to do? I'd like to handle wine. That's what I'd like to do. Pass wine back and forth. Sounds like a good job. What'd you do, honey? I passed wine today to the king. What else did you do? Passed wine to the king. That's what I did. That's what he was. He was a cupbearer. Now, what is a cupbearer? A cupbearer is actually a little bit more than that. It's the right-hand advisor to the king. It's the most trusted official that the king has. The king's life is in the hands of the cupbearer. So, and, and the monarchy system back then, if you wanted to take out the king, the, the kingdom, you took out the king. That's the easiest way to do. Cut the head off the snake, right? And so one of the ways that, that they, people often tried to kill the king was by getting an insider in there, poisoning his wine. And so one of the things the cupbearer did was advise the king. The other thing he did was anytime the king felt nervous, he was like, you first. And the cupbearer took a sip and let's wait. Okay, I'll drink it now, right? So that's what he did. So that's what Nehemiah was. He was the most trusted um, advisor and protector of the king. Now, what we saw last week is Nehemiah is serving God faithfully when just being the right-hand man of the king, honoring God as king of the universe while respecting this king of Persia and doing his job really, really well. He was good at his job. He was respected by the king but he was honoring God above all. And then news comes to him from his brother about the state of the city of God. The city of God is Jerusalem, all right? Now, this is about 20 years after Ezra led a group of believers back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to restore the right worship of God. Now, at this time, they had successfully rebuilt the temple, but the city was still in shambles. We're told that the walls around the city were destroyed. 
the walls that protect the city from raids and, and, and different uh, people trying to overthrow the city, they're all still destroyed. And the gates that were meant to secure the city had been burned. So Nehemiah finds out that the city and the church is without protection, right? And when he hears this news, he sits down and he weeps and he mourns for days on end and he starts fasting. That means he doesn't eat anything. And he begins to pray to God for wisdom and what to do. Now we saw last week, he's kind of, he has this moment, right? He has this moment. Um, This isn't a normal moment. Men and women, this is not how we should live our life normal day to day. You see something bad on the news and you just weep for days on end, right? That's not normal. We also see him, so what we saw last week was God was kind of touching his heart in this moment. God was giving him his heart for the city in this moment that he would be grieved to seek God for the good of the city. And he, he does that. He begins to seek God. And then he begins to confess his sins. But not just his sins, the sins of his father's house. But not just their sins, the sins of the nation as a whole. That we see that Nehemiah had this covenantal framework. And that's so hard for me to get across because we live in such an individualistic society that most of us don't understand the nature of covenant. And God only relates to us through a covenant. So Nehemiah has this covenantal framework for his identity. He was not just an individual. He couldn't sit back and say, I I don't live in Jerusalem. I didn't do anything. I'm not fornicating. I'm not breaking commandments. I'm here being faithful at the right hand of the king. What has that got to do with me? He doesn't look at the city and see the brokenness and see the darkness and just separate himself from it and say, man, those people are being stupid over there. No, he says, we have sinned against you. Lord, be gracious to us saw himself as a part of a family of sinners, a part of a nation of sinners, and he was acting as a representative, as a priest for them. He was going before God as a priest for his people. He was standing in the gap and saying, we are all guilty, Lord, for breaking your commandments. I confess our guilt and I ask for your grace and forgiveness. Would you please save us, Lord? And he reminded God of, the covenant that God had made in the past with Moses that said, quote, if you return to me, that means if you repent of your sins and love me and walk in my ways, I will bless you. God had promised if they return, he would bless them. He would gather them from all the nations of the world and bring them back to the city of God and bless them there. Now listen, I believe that God wants us to take this kind of ownership over our city, over our church, over our family as well. We aren't just individuals. We need to think covenantally. We are to grieve over the ways that we have sinned and broken covenant with God personally, yes, but also as our family has done, also as our church has done, also as our city and our state has done. We are to stand in the gap and confess our sins to God and say, God, like we did this morning, God, we have walked away from you so many times. We have forgotten the covenant that we made with you. We have believed and acted like we are our own, that this is like I am my own and I have my own control over my own body and my own, all of my finances, that this is mine instead of 
his, instead of members of his body, citizens of his kingdom, that we are meant to be a city within a city, a city of light in the midst of our city, that we are to operate and function as a church to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. So, Lord, forgive us for forgetting that. Forgive us for abandoning your covenant. Forgetting, forget, forgive us for thinking like we are just our own and we have only our own sins to think about and to worry about. And give us, Lord, would you give us success in this city? Forgive us for believing that it can't be done. Forgive us for believing that our city is just always going to get darker, darker, and darker, and darker. Forgive us for believing that the best days of our city or the best days of our nation are behind us. Forgive us for our lack of faith, Lord. God loves our city. God wants to save people in our city. He wants people who ignore him, people who hate him, to be reconciled and brought to the truth, to be reconciled through Jesus Christ. He wants them to know Jesus Christ died for their sins. They can be reconciled to God. They can be made right with God. They can be forgiven of all their sins and brought into a right relationship with him and given a new spiritually fa- a spiritual family in his church. Think about that. Who doesn't need forgiveness? Who doesn't need a relationship with their creator? Who doesn't need direction for their lives? Instruction on what is right and what is wrong. Who doesn't need a community of people who know how to forgive one another as they have been forgiven? You can't find that out in the world. Who doesn't want eternal life? Well, what we need to see here is God's plan for all of that is found in one place. You could call it the city of God. We call it the local church here. The local church is God's plan A for saving the world and he has no plan B. I'll say that again. The local church is God's plan A for saving the world and he has no plan B. So if you want to see this city changed for the better, our nation changed for the better, to look more like the city of God than the city of man, then you've got to be totally committed to the local church. This is where the mission of God to save the world gets worked out. So just like Nehemiah, we are to be passionately committed and personally prayerful to see God's Work done in our city. Now listen, last week, that's what we saw. Nehemiah is praying. We're going to see he actually prays for three or four months. Okay? He just commits himself to a season of prayer. Now I'm calling our church into a season of prayer. 
I want us to pray for the elders that we would lead where God is calling us to lead, that we'd have the courage to, 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 to meet with God and, say, and, and find out this is where God's calling us to lead, and that we'd have the courage to set our face that direction, and we'd walk that direction. I'm, I want, I'm calling us to pray for our members, that our members of our church would be united in our mission together that we would treat gossip and slander like poisonous gases to be avoided at all costs. Gossip and slander are the enemy's tactics to bring division, and we would treat it like that. Someone starts gossiping, we'd shut it down immediately. That you would pray for our MC leaders as they step back into their responsibilities of leading our people back into the everyday Work of ministry in, in the city. Work of loving one another, caring for one another, making meals for one another, babysitting, being in community and on mission. Pray for our MC leaders as they are beginning to step back into that great work. Pray that we can find a building that will serve as our strategic base for reaching our city and building a multi-generational church where we can worship together under one roof. Never thought I'd have to write that, worship together under one roof. But we've been worshiping together under three roofs for about 11 years. Well, actually, it was one roof, and it became two roofs, and it became three roofs. Actually, now it's four because the youth is on another building across the campus as God continued to bless us, and we've continued to grow. We've added roofs. I don't like that. I like us all under one roof if we could. Also pray for us to be able to raise the money, raise the capital that we need to purchase this building. So I'm calling our church into a season of prayer. Pray, pray, pray. We're gonna be sending out some prayer reminders. We want you to be praying for all these things in your missional communities, at home, around the dinner table. We might have some nights of prayer. I was trying to organize a night of prayer and it's so frustrating to try to organize anything outside of Sunday here because this building is a rented building. Moline is over there. We don't wanna have to go over there all the time. They've got their own building. No other building is big enough for us all to gather, not even for a prayer meeting. It's frustrating. It's just, and prayer meetings over Zoom just do not sound fun, okay? <laughs> just doesn't sound fun. Let's just not do that, right? Well, that's what Nehemiah 1, that's what Nehemiah was all, was all about. And we need to learn that. We need to be people of prayer, right? We need to seek God's will for us be people of prayer. We need to be confessing our sins both individually and collectively. We need to have a heart for our city. We need to believe that if God is for us, who can be against us? Who knows what can happen in this city? Who knows? I don't want to get too excited, but goodness, man. We've seen revivals before, right? We've seen revivals before, and we could see them again. Well, Nehemiah 2 begins... You're like, Justin, that was a long intro. I don't think you're doing well here. Ha! <laughs> I'm trying. Nehemiah 2, okay? Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, that is March, April, according to our calendar, it's again three to four months later. So he's been praying. And what you're going to find out today, listen, some of us are good at praying, but that's all we do. We pray. We go to our prayer closet, we pray. We pray, we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray. Some of us are really good at planning. And many of us, that's not the, usually that's not the same person. 
So usually one person's going to pray, the other person's like, yeah, yeah, you pray, I'm going to go plan, and I'm going to make a plan, we're going to write it out, we're going to have a strategic vision, and we're going to get after this thing. Well, the planner needs to pray, and the prayer needs to plan, but both of them actually need to do something, because here's the problem. Praying, it's good, that's great, but God doesn't, we don't, we're not just meant to pray, and then God somehow, you know, miraculously t- picks us up like puff- puppets and gets us where he wants us to go. No, you actually have to take a step of faith. You actually have to do something. And you can't just plan because plans change, right? Mike Tyson famously said, everybody's got a game plan until they get punched in the face, right? That's true. You make a plan, something goes wrong, uh, I quit, right? So what we're going to see is we can't just pray. We need to pray. We can't just plan. We need to plan. We actually have the courage, have to have the courage to do something. That's what we see and Nehemiah chapter 2. So let's get after it and read it this morning, all right? Chapter 2, verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, see, it's <laughs> Nehemiah here, when wine is before, oh, it's my turn, here we go, it's my opportunity to step before the king. Anytime he's drinking, I'm right by his side, all right? I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. There's his job, job description. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Now, first thing we need to see here, Nehemiah spent four months praying and formulating a plan, but what Nehemiah does not do, so he sees God wants to restore a city. God wants to bring healing to a city, right? Jerusalem. Nehemiah does not quit his job and go into the ministry. It's not what he does. Nehemiah trusts the providence of God and seeks to leverage his current position for the kingdom of God. Too many of us think that since we aren't a pastor or a politician or somebody in high office or some great position of authority, that we therefore can't serve God's purpose in the world. That's just not the case. I'm reminded, and you know what I'm reminded of, I'm reminded of the Lord of the Rings at this moment because we, if you read the Lord of the Rings or you watch the Lord of the Rings, here's the one person I know you don't want to be. Samwise Gamgee. Nobody reads it and goes, that's me. Tolkien wrote me into the story. I want to be Samwise Gamgee. No, we want to be Aragorn. We want to be Legolas. We want to be Gandalf. We want to be these people of power, these people of prestige, these people of great lineage. But once you read the story, you realize that the ring would never have been destroyed without Sam. And Sam was nothing more than a bullheaded, faithful friend. He just would not quit. When Frodo laid down and basically gave, or when Frodo was basically took out, he picked him up and he carried him. He took care of him. When Frodo couldn't go anymore, he carried the ring. He carried Frodo. And the ring would never have been destroyed if it wasn't for the faithful friend, Samwise Gamgee. Well, here's the reality. Most of us in this room, that's what our calling is. That's what our calling is, to be a faithful friend, Right? to be a normal person in the kingdom of God and trust that God's going to use us to move his mission forward wherever he has us. The kingdom of God needs construction workers, needs accountants, 
needs managers and salesmen and teachers and artists and children and mothers and fathers, grandparents, and on and on and on I could go. Being a citizen of the city of God is about leveraging your current gifts and station of life for the kingdom of God. It's about being faithful to God right where you are. So Nehemiah says to himself, God, I want to see that city changed. Well, I'm a cupbearer. I'm the king's cupbearer. What can I do here for the city of God? So he formulates a plan in the midst of praying. So he's been praying and now he formulates a plan. And listen, this is a dangerous plan. You cannot just walk into the king and say, King, something's been on my mind. That's not how you enter the king's presence. You'd be killed for doing that. The king has to summon you. You have to be invited by the king. But, so now here's this quandary. Well, how do I get the attention of the king in such a way that the king asks me what's on my heart or what's on my mind or what do I need from you? Because you don't want to be seen as leveraging. The first, if, if you're the right hand, right, hand, right hand man of the king, he wants you to be unbiased. He doesn't want to be you, you leveraging your position for your own personal benefit, right? As soon as he thinks that you've got an ax to grind or you've got something to gain from him, he's going to push away from you. He's going to hire somebody else for the job. So this is a very delicate situation that Nehemiah finds himself in. So Nehemiah formulates this plan. It's kind of a funny plan to me. I just think it's kind of hilarious. He chooses this kind of risky avenue like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my grief into the presence of the king. That's what he decides to do. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, look at the end of verse 1. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. I had not been sad in his presence. So the one thing that I haven't been in the presence of the king is sad. I've been encouraging, right? Now listen, why is this a big deal? The king has a difficult and stressful job. And he did not want sourpusses in his presence, right? Keep your family issues at home when you go to the boss's office, right? Like, I've got enough to deal with. Keep that away, and especially so for the king. So Nehemiah has never brought his sadness into the presence of the king. As a cupbearer and the right-hand advisor to the king, Nehemiah had a positive attitude when in the king's presence at all time. So he was meant to help and support and um, strengthen the king so he didn't bring his negative attitude or his problems into the presence of the king. Nehemiah tells us that he had been faithful to that. That means Nehemiah had to be a man that could work out his own emotional issues at home or in the prayer closet. I mean, look at this guy. Nehemiah, he's very emotional in chapter 1 right? Grieving and weeping and mourning and confessing his sins. He, he's, it seems like he's like the bleeding heart type of guy, but obviously he's not. And most men in this room would be like, Ugh, if you're asking me to do that, I don't know if I can do it, right? But obviously Nehemiah's not that type of guy that just emotions spill over all the time and he's uncontrolled and he's not self-controlled and disciplined because he had always left that at home. He'd always stepped into the king respectable, faithful, in control, didn't put on a sad face, didn't bring his depression into the meeting. He was a man that could do that. But now, Nehemiah actually does something different. 
he decided to leverage his relationship with the king. The king knew he had been respectable and faithful in all these different things. So Nehemiah decides to leverage this and look and risk his life by coming into the presence of the king this one time with grief on his countenance. Look at verse 2. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Now this is hilarious because in the Hebrew, it literally says, why is your face so bad? <laughs> like Nehemiah steps in and the king's like, you're, what's wrong with your face? <laughs> right, fix your face. What's wrong with your face? Now, so it's, it's a stark boom. Oh, something's up with Nehemiah. Nehemiah's normally in control, right? He's normally encouraging something's going on with Nehemiah. And the king said to me, why is your face sad <laughs> seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Now, the king recognizes this is not normal and Nehemiah is actually depressed. There's this um, grief and this soul depression going on and it's causing his face to look bad, and he diagnoses it as sadness of heart. Now, up until this moment, Nehemiah's plan has worked, okay? I need to get the king's attention. I need the king to ask me something about my own life or about my own heart, right? The king has seen there's something wrong with me, and the state of my soul is not well at this moment, but this is interesting. So right now, we're at the moment. Okay, right now, the king says, why is your face so bad, right? And now look how Nehemiah responds. Then I was very much afraid. This is the moment. Like the next words that come out of my mouth, I could lose my head because of them. I have just done something wrong. I've brought my grief to the king and now I could be killed for it. And what is the response? So this we see right away, guys. Nehemiah is not somehow like, Superman walking into the presence of king and the king confident that he's going to get the answer that he wants and he knows he's impervious because the, the king of the universe is behind him and he's not without fear and he steps up and he says, thus like Moses, right? Thus saith the Lord, Pharaoh, right? That's not the way Nehemiah is at all. He, said, he comes in with a sad face and he says, what's wrong with your face? And he's like, I'm afraid. That's where he's at. What we're going to see here is doing anything for God requires courage. And so many people don't understand what courage is. Courage, doesn't, courage isn't like Alex Arnold or whatever the guy's name is who climbs the mountains free solo without fear because literally there's something wrong with his brain that doesn't produce the adrenaline and the fear. That's not what it means. Like all of a sudden, just, I'm not afraid anymore. No. Courage is being afraid and doing it anyway. It takes courage to share the gospel with a coworker. It takes courage to tell your best friend that you think the way that they're living is wrong because it goes against scripture. It takes courage to invite someone into your missional community or invite somebody to this gathering. It takes courage to stand for truth, capital T truth, 
amidst a culture that doesn't even believe in it. It takes courage, young people and old people, to resist the pull of sin. It takes courage to be patient when you want to be rash. It takes courage to be kind and gentle when all you want to do is lash out. In fact, everything that God calls us to do takes courage. We are called by God to be courageous, and that often means just obeying God when we are scared to death to do it. God, I know this is going to hurt my reputation. I know people are going to say something bad about me. I know that person's going to reject me if I do or say this. It takes courage to remain faithful to God in the midst of that. Now listen, one of the reasons I think the, cult, the, the church is declining in our culture is because they don't have courage. They're afraid of offending people. They're afraid of what the culture is going to say about them. They're afraid that what the news is going to say about them or the school board is going to say about them or somebody out there is going to say about them. So they compromise the truth. They, they compromise Jesus in order to please people. This is why the apostle Paul said, if I was still trying to please people, I could not please God. So Paul says, he knew he couldn't do it. Nehemiah here says, I'm afraid. Like, I am about to wet my pants in this moment, but I'm still going to take my shot. I'm still going to do it. Now, C.S. Lewis writes about this in, this in the screw tape letters. This is what he says, quote, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the highest at the point of highest reality. He says this, a chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. He says, Pilate was merciful till it became risky. See, it takes courage to remain faithful. It takes courage to be honest. It takes courage to be true. And when you're tempted to just fudge a little bit on the truth, or I'm not going to really say what the Bible says because I don't want to offend per a person, you're failing in courage right there. And you're failing in truthfulness right there. That courage isn't just one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at its testing point. We need courage, all of us. Verse three. So he's very much afraid, but what does he do? I said to the king, let the king live, <laughs> let the king live forever. The first thing he says is like, he basically is like, I love you, man. I love you, all right? Just to let you know this, I love you. Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves? Now, this is interesting too. Again, one of our aspects of our vision is we've, we've called it county over country, that we want to be a localized people. We want, once again, for this city to be our city and the city of our children and the city of our grandchildren, that we want to return to local. Now, there's, there's this been this move in the United States and even, the, even globally, you know, globalism, and we want to move around and be a global citizen, and we want to move to the coolest cities. And there's, not, not, there's nothing wrong with that per se. 
There's nothing wrong with that per se, but it complicates the family. It complicates the relationship with parents and children. It complicates our own relationships, our own fathers. How do we honor our father and mother as they age if we're we're across the country from them? But scripture tells us to honor our father and mother and take care of our our, our, uh, aging parents. How are we supposed to do that if we live in different places, right? What we see here from Nehemiah is Nehemiah says, that city, the place of my father's graves, that there's something about me that's still there. That's my place. That's where my people are from. He goes on, he says, this city, the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So he's like, what, the reason I'm sad is because my city is destroyed. The place where my people are from is destroyed. The king said to me, I love the king right now in this moment. What are you requesting? Like, just no emotion. What do you want? And then look at this. So I prayed to the God of heaven. (laughs) Nehemiah, man, he prayed for months. He formulated a plan. He stepped into it. He was afraid. He took courage. He's made, he made his request. The king says, so what do you want? He says, Jesus, help me. That is a, that is a, so the first chapter one, proactive prayer. Chapter two, reactive prayer. God, help me. This is the one right before you pray, right? When you get the test, right? Lord, help me. God, help me. Right? That's the, that's the reactive. You're stepping into a different, difficult meeting. Jesus, help me. Holy Spirit, help me. He's dependent upon the Lord in this moment. Okay? He knows his, his plan's not perfect, or, and, he, and he, he, he doesn't even trust himself in this moment. Right? His anxiety's probably high. His heart's beating fast. I might say the wrong thing. God, help me. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, this is his shot. He's stepping into it. Again, if it pleases the king, I love the king, love you, man. This pleases the king. And if your servant has found favor in your sight, if you trust me, if I've been a good employee to you, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves. Again, he he notes it, where I'm from. This localized mission. Place matters. And here it is, up front and center. Send me back there that I may rebuild it. That's my goal. That's our goal for this city. If you take it global or country, our goal, that's our goal for our country. We want to rebuild it. If you want to go farther than that, that's the goal of what we want to do around the globe. Jesus told us to make disciples of all the nations. That's what we want to do. We want to rebuild the city of God locally, here, in our county, in our state in our country, around the world. That's the, that's the goal of the Christian. That's the goal of the church. We're building the kingdom of God. And he comes up right up front. He's not afraid to say it. What's your goal? I want to go back and rebuild my city. I want to go back and rebuild the city of God. Now, this is interesting because 13 years prior, if you remember from the book of Ezra, one of the things the king told them to stop doing was to stop rebuilding the wall. Remember, they were working on the temple and they were working on their homes and then they had kind of, some people had, start, had scattered around, stopped working on the temple and started working on the wall and the king sent an edict, 
sent an edict back and said, stop working on the wall. Stop doing that. It's okay to build a church. It's okay to be, do some religious stuff back in the city, but don't fortify the walls. Don't build a great city. No. Well, now, 13 years later, Nehemiah says, yeah, I know that there's already policy on that. I know you've already said we can't do that, but now I'm asking that you overturn your previous decision and you actually allow us to go back and rebuild the city. This is a monumental ask here. And by the way, this is history. This isn't a made-up Bible story, right? We have historical archaeological evidence for this. And later on in the book of Nehemiah, I'm even going to show the archaeological dig that has revealed the wall of Nehemiah that they build. It's pretty spectacular. So I prayed to the king and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. That's the goal. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. Now this is an interesting point here. I got sidetracked by this for a lot. Many, why would you throw that in there? The queen sitting beside him. Why would the author put this in here? Many people believe that this, that this is a reference to Queen Esther. That it's possible that Queen Esther, if you're from the book of Esther, that Queen Esther now is sitting right beside him and is influencing the king. That has actually changed his opinion of the work of God and of the city of God. All right? So don't know it for certain, but it makes sense to me. Keep going. How long will you be gone and when will you return? Logistics. The king wants to know how much time you want off. He really says like 12 years. And the king's like, sounds right. Go ahead. So it pleased the king to send me. It pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So this, this wasn't like bending the arm of the king. For some reason, the king said, yeah, sounds good. Go do it. Now we know why. Well, I'll get to that later. We'll see at the very end of this. Let's keep going. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, oh, he's going, oh, one, one more thing. <laughs> one more thing. If it pleases the king, again, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river. So that is the governors who are ruling between, between where he's at in Susa and Jerusalem. All the land in between, he's asking for paperwork that allows him to go through there unharmed. Okay, now keep reading. That they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. Okay, so he doesn't just want safe passageway here. He also wants a letter to the king's forest. Hey, I'm going to need some wood to rebuild the king or re rebuild the city. I need some wood. Would you do that? That he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. So he said, here's my goal. I'm going back. I need to rebuild the wall. I need to rebuild the gates and I need to rebuild the house for me to live in. So I need you to send me a letter to Asaph to let me get some of that timber. So we see here a big request. Overturn what you previously ruled illegal. Let me rebuild the wall, okay? Give me 12 years off to do it. Provide for me safe passageway to get there. And I need you to finance the deal. I need some wood to rebuild this. Does this sound good, king? Good plan? Look at this. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Remember that phrase was in Ezra, all over Ezra. Every time Ezra got success, the good hand of 
God was upon me. Now what Nehemiah is doing here is Nehemiah is planning ahead. He knows, listen, safe passageway is not guaranteed. He needs guards. Why? Because people don't want to see the kingdom of God advance. People don't want to see the city of God built on this earth. And so he says, I need protection. I think we're going to have some fights ahead of us. I think there's going to be some warfare and some battle ahead of us. King, I need some help. So he makes a plan, offers it to the king, and the king says yes. And God rewards Nehemiah's faithfulness and courage. The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. He made the difficult ask, and the king said yes, and it pleased the king to say yes. Why? This is what Proverbs 21.1 says. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Do you believe that? God is able to move the heart of any leader in the world at any time. He can move their heart to accomplish his mission in the world whenever he wants to. And he's done it. He's done it. This mission or this knowledge should make us even more courageous. As I think about our vision here in our city, God knows what building we are to have in this city. I don't know. I wish I did. I don't know. Been praying for it. Just give me a vision. I don't know what it is yet, but God does. God knows who owns it right now. God knows who owns it or who owns the land if he calls us to build, but whoever owns it right now, their heart is, is, is in his hand and who knows what he is going to do. This is how we got our building across the river in Moline. It was just an absolute miracle to get that building. We got a building worth half a million dollars for $75,000. Some of you paid more for your recent car. It's insane. God can do stuff like that. Let's ask him as we're praying. Let's ask him to do something miraculous like that for us. Let me catch us up here on this building campaign and this vision that we have. We basically have three options. We have three options for a building. Number one, the Lord opens up a current church building that we could purchase. Now, as you're praying, this would be our preference. It would be the least expensive option, and we could potentially get a beautiful and historic piece of property in our city that sacred architecture is designed to inspire worship. If you saw any of the king's funer or queen's funeral this past week, one of the most beautiful church buildings on the planet has sat there for a thousand years and worship has been going on there for a thousand years. It's a beautiful piece of architecture. If something like that were to open up, we could purchase it immediately and we could move in immediately anytime in the next year. So this is the quickest option. Uh, we, the cheapest option, we would love it for this to, to happen. But uh, there's not too many folks that are just excited to give up their building. Let's just say it that way. And, uh, and God would have to do it. Second, we find some kind of warehouse, some kind of big box store that we could build out. Now, this would be a lot more ex expensive than the first option and more pragmatic and practical. 
Um, this would most likely be a 12 to 20 month long project to raise the funds and to build it out. And a couple churches have done that in the area. You see what that looks like. You know what that looks like. Um, not what we want, but we need to worship God. We need a strategic location. We need to worship God under one roof. We need to stop setting up, tearing down the whole deal that we've been doing for 11 years. Option number three is new construction. Now, this is the most expensive option and would also have the longest time frame. But we could buy a piece of property where we want to be and we could build what we want to be, what we want uh, exactly how we want it. And we could even buy enough land to plan for the future and future expansion if the Lord would bless us. So those are the three options. You can pray for all three of those options, um, kind of, I guess, in order if you want to, but it's up to the Lord what the Lord chooses to do. Now, if you've been around our church, you know in the history of our church, I, th I think this is right, we've taken up two offerings other than just having the box here on Sunday morning. We take up two offerings. Now, we primarily do that because when I planted this church, when I was asking a lot of people what they thought of the church, one of the chief responses was, the, chief or the, chief, the church just wants my money. And I'm a bullheaded guy, and so I said, well, then we're not going to take up offerings. We're not going to take up offerings because we don't want your money. We don't need your money. We're here to plant the gospel. We're here to preach the gospel. We're here to plant churches. So we didn't take up offerings. We, we never did. Um, and the Lord blessed us, took care of us financially. And the only time we had, one time, to outfit the, the two cottages, we bought those cottages. They were in absolute shambles, or we, we, uh, we leased them, but we um, put $75,000 and I think $100,000 into the other cottage. We raised all of that money, and we remodeled them uh, from the ground up. And we had a, a one offering for that. And the second offering was for the, the nonprofit 180 uh, in the Quad Cities. We raised like $25,000 one Christmas for them and just gave it to them. That's the only two offerings, uh, special offerings we've ever had in the history of the church. And, and now we have to do a building campaign. And I'll be honest, I don't want to do it. I want to pray and preach. That's what I want to do. I don't want to plan and organize some building campaign. That sounds like death to me. This is exactly what I don't want to do, right? But God is calling us to step out into this big, huge endeavor. And I know some of you are going to push away from it, right? The church just wants our money or don't we give enough already or all these different things. I get it. This takes courage. If I could be totally honest with you, I'm afraid to say numbers and to step out into this stuff, right? I don't want to do it. But I feel that God is leading us into this building campaign, and it's important for us to raise right now some kind of some fast cash in order to be able to capitalize on any property that comes available that could meet our needs. We're right now reaching out to different churches and we're offering them the option to right-size their building because many of them built a big building and now they've, over the past 50 years or so, they've shrank, but they have more property where they could build a smaller building that would better suit their needs and will buy their old building. We're sending out letters, we're, we're pursuing these things, but we need the, to have the finances available. If one of those comes available, we can step into it right away. As we surveyed our finances, I believe that we are capable of raising an additional $400,000 by next summer. That's roughly 50% of our annual budget. Now, the Lord has already blessed us. The Lord's hand is already upon this. The Lord has already blessed us with 
one giver who says, I'm going to give $100,000 matching gifts. So if the rest of the church gives $100,000, I'll match it up to $100,000, doubling our impact collectively as a church. Now we haven't, I've been gone all summer and we haven't talked about this much. We've already got $25,000 given towards that. So we have another $75,000 to raise to meet that matching gift that I would like to have uh, fully funded by the end of this year, by the, by the 1st of January. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of money and it is a lot of money, but we can do it if we all come together prayerfully and we, we make a plan for our, even our own personal finances, ways to save some extra money, ways to cash out some, some IRAs or 401ks or, or selling a piece of property or selling an extra car or vehicle or motorcycle or whatever, that we, whatever it is we've got, that we could all collectively come together, make a plan and give towards this work. If we all make significant sacrifices, what are we doing this for? to see God's city built here in the Quad Cities. Listen, nobody else is, I don't, I'm not saying any other church out there is not doing it, but very few are doing it. We're, you haven't seen a lot of churches planted in the Quad Cities over the last eight years, right? You don't see a lot of churches expanding in the Quad Cities. You don't see them building new buildings and buying more property. You see some of the Catholic churches um, come, like closing two campuses and, co- and merging into one campus to do things. We, I think God is calling us to do this and it's going to take courage for us to step out into it. We are investing now into our kids and their kids' spiritual future. We are ensuring now that there will be a church here 20 years down the road that remains faithful to God and faithful to his scriptures. We have to invest now if we want to see it down the road. We are investing now into seeing more people coming to Christ in the Quad Cities. They're not going to come to Christ if there's not a preacher preaching to them. They're not going to come to Christ if there's not a building that can house that preacher and house that people. We've got to do this. The elders and I believe that now is the time. It's time. We've prayed about it. We're planning the best we can. And now it's time to put our money where our mouth is. We've prayed, we've planned, and now let's give. And maybe, Lord willing, the good hand of our God will be upon us to accomplish this in the Quad Cities. Now, that's exactly what's going on in Nehemiah. We're going to have more of this coming out to you guys. We're going to have, the the team's been working on all kind of stuff. We're going to be offering pledges and things like that. But I just want you to start this in your mind, praying, planning, how can I give? How can I make a sacrifice to see the mission of God move forward? And then let's give, let's raise that extra 75, at least that extra 75,000 by the end of this year. So I'm gonna go ahead and pray for us this morning. Father God, we don't do this to make our name great. We don't do this just to build a big church building for our own glory. Father, we do this because we desire to see our city changed. We want to have your heart for our city. We want the people of our city to hear the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel that brings forgiveness of sins, that 
gives them a new heavenly father who loves them and has eternal life for them, a new spiritual family that will help them walk in this new life that Jesus has purchased for us, help them repent of their sin and lay aside that weight that clings so closely that hinders their running after God. Father, we want to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Would you give us the faith to believe that you can do it? Would you give us the faith to believe that you want to do it, that the future of our city could be brighter than our past, that you can turn us around through faith and repentance and the declaration of your word? Would you give us the faith to believe it? And Father, if we lack the faith, we just have to look around this room because you did that for each one of us. You saved us. You brought us into this community from who knows where and what kind of story and an ungodly background. You brought people from all kinds of walks of life together under your banner, under the name Sacred City for your glory that you have been at work in this city the past 11 years and you want to do even more in the next decade. Would you give us the faith to believe it, Father? Let this sacred meal that we're about to eat together remind us of that fact that we, are, we come together and we're made one in the body of Christ. Jesus, we eat this meal as brothers and sisters. We eat this meal as citizens of the kingdom of God. That Jesus gave us this meal to remind us of his death, to remind us that he's at work here. He's done the work and he's still at work through the Holy Spirit. Jesus, I'm reminded on the, on the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body given to you. You took the cup and you said, this is the cup of the new covenant. That my, your blood was spilled so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have a new spiritual family, so we could be assured of your love for us, of our own forgiveness of sins. And so we come and we eat this meal in faith and by faith this morning. Would you, through it, unite our hearts in faith? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And amen.